You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris, and today I'm like super excited to be joined with Dr. Kim Getz. And we're going to discuss some blue whale conservation work that she's been involved with here in New Zealand, which I'm really excited to finally meet another conservation expert here. But welcome, Kim. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. This was I was so excited when you said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll come on and do an interview. So thank you. It, it, it's I've been really pumped for this one. No problem. So for the listeners, I always like to ask first, you know, just kind of give us a, a brief background, you know, where you grew up and, you know, would you do some of your graduate work? Yeah, so I grew up in Denver, Colorado, um, which does not have an ocean, so you can see the dilemma <laughs> I was in. Yes. Um, I did, uh, I couldn't at the, afford to go out of state for undergrad, so I did do my undergraduate degree in Boulder in biology, and then... Um, Worked in various pro- conservation projects at the university, primarily with insects, and then I decided to go do my master's degree and got accepted into a conservation lab at Duke University in North Carolina. And oh, wow. um, yeah, so I worked on um, mostly on beluga whales in the Arctic for that, and then based on the data that I, I used for my master's, which was part of the um, Marine Mammal Lab in NOAA, they asked mm-hmm. me to come back, and I worked in... Seattle for several years at NOAA, working primarily on beluga and then bowhead whales in the Arctic. And then, wow. um, yeah, I decided to go back to school again, and I then went and did my PhD at the University of California. And for my PhD, I was fortunate enough to go to Antarctica many times, where I did um, work on weddell seals and mm. emperor penguins in the Antarctic. Oh my goodness! You've been pole to pole. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. My, my advisor's favorite expression is introducing me as his bipolar student. So. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Uh, I, never, I have a few of those, even though they didn't travel. <laughs> Angie, yeah, um, you know, she uh, she'll sure. be listening to this too. Yeah, yeah. No, that's awesome. Yeah, beluga whales, and I know uh, we have so much to talk about today. You know, but that's really great that you can give us or the listeners' perspectives on the Arctic and the Antarctic. Yep. So, really, I guess you would say your conservation passion began as your undergrad, or you know, what you really know, got you into this field. It's really funny that you should ask that. So I was recently home, uh, back in the States. I was uh, in Colorado and found some old box in the basement that had uh, diaries from when I was a kid that were diaries oh, wow. that were um, that we wrote in school. It wasn't like my personal diary, but it was, you know, start mm-hmm. a sentence, you know, using this just to get us writing. And I was flipping through it. And I kid you not, this must have been when I was 10. Every other thing was about when I grow up, I want to work with animals and nature and I want to you mm-hmm. know, do something to protect the world. And it was just kind of blew my mind because I have no recollection of it. But I know I always had a very strong passion about conservation. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, and I know a lot of our listeners, you know, obviously everybody's really passionate about animals that are, that listen and, and mine, you know, people ask me, when did you start your career? And, you know, I was like four or five years old. I was like, oh, I'm going to work with animals. You know, I just knew that was yeah, my Yeah, absolutely. It's drive, like your calling. So. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And here you are, you know, making making the difference for marine conservation. So, yeah, I, I guess that kind of leads me into, you know, where did your work uh, – it sounds like your undergrad was in insects and other species, you know, obviously mm-hmm. being landlocked. But where did your work in con- marine conservation begin and what's your current involvement? 
You know, I was really fortunate when I was applying to go back to graduate school. I had a pretty diverse interest in that. Honestly, I'm, I'm just very interested in conservation and animal movement behavior, and the species mattered less to me at that point. And so um, mm-hmm. I was very fortunate, though, in the lab that I was accepted to with Dr. Andy Reid. He's a uh, a very prominent conservationist in the marine mammal field. And I got accepted mm-hmm. in his lab. And so that's kind of um, during my master's where I I really um, got into the marine mammal world and conservation related to that. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and that's where you went uh, to the Arctic, right? Yeah, so it was um, it was actually not part of my master's program to, to go to the Arctic, but I had an internship with um, with NOAA that was that was part of it, and they I went out to Seattle one summer between my master's and helped organize some data uh, for my professor that I was in his lab, and um, at that point, you know, they allowed me to use that data for my master's degree, and they were mm-hmm. really happy with it, invited me back, and ever and then I spent you know the next four years working for them, and that's where. Um, I, I worked primarily on the conservation of beluga whales, and we were able to list them, um, a small population of coconut belugas that uh, less than 300 animals, we finally got them listed as endangered, which has been an, an, wow. a, a very, wow. very difficult battle, given the politics behind it. Yeah, it is. It is. It's it's doing this podcast and talking to people like yourself. You know, uh, one of the ones that's, that's sticking out in my mind now is we talked to Niaga Leonard. Uh, he works in Vietnam mm-hmm. on Kappa Island, protecting the Langers there. And one of the things, you know, bless you for what you're doing, you know, first, because it's amazing work that the passion that, that goes into to this speaking to all you experts. But yeah, there's a lot of politics across borders, right? I it's mean, so complicated. And even here, even coming to New Zealand from the U.S., I mean, it is so different. And it's, you know, and I think as scientists is that we, there really needs to be more training in the world of policy. And I understand, um, I understand that a lot of scientists don't want to do policy. And I get that because, you know, I don't necessarily want to be a politician. But, you know, I was fortunate enough that in my master's program, it was mandatory that we had to take, right. we had to take law classes, we had to take policy classes. And, and honestly, I wasn't happy at the time. But I'm extremely happy now because you, no matter if you're working on conservation and you're working and you're really, you know, on trying to protect an animal and very passionate about it, you need to know how to converse with these people because you can publish to your blue in the face, but unless you can have the conversation and interact with people making policy, it's, you're not going to get very far. No, that's, oh, that's a great point. Cause I, oh, yeah, cause as a scientist myself, I'm like, I've never had a law class. I never had to deal with policy. And I know before we started recording, I was telling you about some of the work I was doing in manatees and elephants and rock hyrex. And when we were going back and forth between South Africa and Florida down in Puerto Rico, which is in the state, yeah. so we didn't have uh, many things there, but we were trying to work with some researchers in Mexico. And it's going to take six, seven, eight months <laughs> to get a CITES permit yeah. to bring in material, yeah. right? Yeah, that's a great point for, for any budding scientists or scientists out there you, you should probably follow up with the with a law class and it's it's very it's i have to admit it's very frustrating like even when you know when we when we were working on you know listing the beluga whales um you know it's it's so complicated because of the way the law is written and what what you have to what components are needed to list an animal for example mm-hmm. and so you know we end up you end up in rooms full of you know economists and lawyers and 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 things like that and and you know they you you're sitting there as a scientist like here's my model this is what it shows and right. they're like I don't know what your model is like what is this you know and so you really have yeah. to know how to explain things to them it come to mm-hmm. you know an agreement and so there's just it, it was much a, a much bigger and broader um, game or, or I don't even know what you would call right. it just a, just a it was a much right. bigger process um, than I had mm-hmm. ever anticipated you know I thought oh you know I'm a scientist this is what I do but. You know, in order to really try to get in there and and do what needs to be done, you you kind of have to know the lingo and how to interact with these kind of people. Right, right, and it's I'm sitting here thinking what they that, that crossed my mind is one of my collaborators back in Florida, Dr. Larkin, and I remember listening to her at a conference, and she she recommended this book. So any scientists out there, if you haven't read it, but it's called "Don't Be Such a Scientist." Oh, cool! Oh, that's great. <laughs> Yeah, and it's a it's about a scientist who took acting classes yeah. and things like that, and and sometimes as a scientist you you just speak a foreign language, yeah. 
and people are like, what are you saying? And yeah, and I, I remember one time I was driving home, this is besides blue whale research, but I was listening to this physicist and he was talking about his research. He was very passionate about it going on and on. I had no clue what he was saying. None. Right. right? Yep. Yeah. Oh, and it's so easy yeah. to do when you take it for granted in your yeah. field. And that's, that's one of my passions too, is that, you know, and, and I kind of alluded to that before yeah. where it was, you know, I, I mean, as a scientist, we, we know our currency is publications right. and publications and peer reviewed scientific journals, right. but you know, sure we read them because they're, you know, in our field and that mm-hmm. kind of thing, but we all, we all know, I mean, let's not kid ourselves as scientists. There may not be the funnest things to read no. on your leisure. No, no. And so, so, but the same, you know, and same with the general public. First of all, they don't even know what the what the journals are. Mm-hmm. They don't have subscriptions. They don't have access mm-hmm. to this this type of information. And so it always, and I, I'm, you know, I'm in that category. I take things for granted that everybody knows what the conservation issues are. And mm-hmm. then I go home, um, you know, and I start talking to my friends who are very intelligent people mm-hmm. in different different paths in life. Some teachers, some some doctors, some various all sorts of careers. And uh, and they have no idea. And they're just like, what? Like, oh my gosh. And I'll start, you know, showing mm-hmm. them videos and stuff. And they, they want to make a difference and they want to do something. And I truly believe there is a lot of people out there that, that want to, but don't know the issues. They don't know how. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's, it's one of those things that, you know, as scientists, it's like some people think like, oh, you know, you do media and outreach and, you know, you're looking for attention and that kind of thing. And then, you know, you you turn that on its head and you think, well, you know what, this is also a way to get information out there and to actually engage with the public to let them know what the issues and the, the important, you know, what's going on in the world of conservation. Right, right. And it's, it, it is so true because, you know, one of the things that Angie and I are trying to do with this podcast is just education. You know, what are, yeah. what are the issues? What, so people can drive along and listen to us and they're like, wow, I didn't know pangolins were the most trafficked animal in the world or, you know, exactly. you know we're going to talk about some marine mammals, but yeah, like, oh yeah, great points, great points. So getting back to, to blue whales, how did you get here to New Zealand? And then where did your work in blue whales begin? So I am, uh, my expertise is in spatial ecology. And so when I say that, I mean that I examine essentially the movement and foraging behavior of animals using different types of tracking data mm-hmm. um, and sighting data. So this also means, you know, either aerial surveys or ship data or even opportunistic reported sightings. And I link that to different environmental variables. You know, if we can access information about their prey, that's ideal, but often that's not um, possible. So we use other environmental correlations. So we might look at sea surface temperature Mm -hmm. or um, elevation, if it's a terrestrial species, or chlorophyll, um, things, things like that. And so you can create these predictive models to understand where animals are likely going to be and predict what their preferred habitat is. And mm-hmm. so that, that basically can be used then for conservation purposes in terms of protection and, um, and things like that. So that's where my expertise is. And so when I finished my PhD, I, there was a, a job that came up in New Zealand and a lot of people let me know about it, and it. Um, so I was like, "Oh, this sounds like an, an opportunity right. to really to to go to another place, understand another country, see how things are 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 what's being done there." Mm-hmm. And so um, I thought it was a really um, unique opportunity to to have, and um, so I accepted and, and moved out here. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, my last uh, it's April now, so I've been here four months. It's uh-huh. amazing. It's an amazing place. It's beautiful. The people are just phenomenal. So, yeah. you know, definitely come visit New Zealand when you can and you can afford it, right? It's not yeah, cheap. Know, right? yeah. that's, that's the problem, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, you know, looking at your work in Blue Whales, I was reading, you know, one of your press clippings. It, it was uh, talking about the difficulty, you know, what you know, of tracking them. So what are you doing exactly? Mm-hmm. I guess my first question is what exactly are you studying right now in the spatial mm-hmm. ecology of blue whales? Yeah. So this all came about is it was a really interesting, um, I guess sort of unknown. Um, uh, we just didn't know a lot. So the issue is, is that there's essentially there's two species of mm-hmm. blue whales in the Southern hemisphere and they're subspecies. And so one is the Antarctic blue whale and one is the pygmy blue whale. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's sort of a misnomer to say pygmy blue right. whale because they're, they're, they're so overlapping size. Like, yeah. you know, so you can't, you know, even as a marine mammal scientist, you know, I would, I would, 
I'd be skeptical if someone told me they could they could um, see the see the difference. The blue whale issue here is is uh, I guess it's not it's not so much an issue as is, is just not a lot known. And so, just to backtrack a tiny bit in mm. New Zealand when when I came out here, it, um, I realized it was very different in the sense that in the U.S. the government is mandated to uh, has legal requirements to um, assess the stock structure and the abundance of various marine mammal species mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and every you know every few years so there's stock assessments and and um, various other work done now coming here I was just blown away because it's I mean it's it's obviously very different it's a different country but it's it's not ran the same in terms of um, looking at the stocks and mm-hmm. knowing about these marine mammals so there's for example there's half of the world's um, you know Whales and dolphins come through New Zealand waters or have been reported in New Zealand waters, mm-hmm. but we know literally next to nothing about the number of animals that are here. There's never been, um, other than for a very few select species like Maui dolphin, there really hasn't been regular routine um, surveys done to understand mm-hmm. how many animals are here. And, and so just, just to give you a, a bit of a background, and so... Mm-hmm. With the blue whales, this was just this really interesting question that came up because we um, blue whale, blue whales, particularly the southern, um, uh, sorry, the Antarctic blue whales, they are critically endangered, and so mm-hmm. they were impacted greatly by whaling. And so the Antarctic blue whales, there's, there was, they were hunted basically down to less than one percent of their wow. their population. Wow. Now there's the pygmy blue whales, which are um, they know that they're not as far south. They don't think so. They don't. They, they think their their range is further north. And so, mm-hmm. what is what is thought to be going on is that the the whales around New Zealand, the blue whales that we see, are primarily pygmy blue whales because the Antarctic blue whales tend to be further south. Mm-hmm. So, um, so there's this this uh, this is what's kind of known at this point, or is known at this point. And so, but the question was, well, where do these animals? Go and so we learned from an acoustic project that we did uh, a year ago or so that on the acoustic instruments that we placed in the middle of Cook Strait, so the area between the North and the South Island, mm-hmm. we are hearing both the Antarctic blue whale call and the pygmy blue whale call. Um, wow. There is there is there's certain over um, there is a, a bit of an overlap in the the vocalizations they can make, but there are separate there are differences, and so when you pick mm. up a certain call, you can tell that it's either a pygmy or an Antarctic blue whale. Mm. So you know that being said, it's like you know the argument is that okay, well, you know you can be hearing Antarctic blue whales really really far away because of their mm-hmm. low frequency. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, is it that they're in Antar- Antarctic waters and we're hearing them? Um, we, however, we have recorded uh, Antarctic blue whale calls even in the Taranaki, so on the uh, more on the west side of Cook Strait, and it's very mm-hmm. shallow water. And with the the types of calls we're getting, um, it's it's really not likely that every single call that we're hearing from Antarctic blues are from Antarctica. So mm-hmm. um, we think they are in New Zealand waters. So right, that, right. So there's kind of that issue, and then it was this. Um, this this other thing that came to light in New Zealand where um, it was proposed to make this Taranaki area, this really large part of the two islands, this, uh, this sanctuary, a marine mammal mm-hmm. sanctuary. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and I think in my, in my perspective as a scientist, like, you know, of course the conservationist in me thinks, yeah, protection is great, but the scientist inside of me knows that you need to kind of do things right and you need to have it based on data, like you can't just throw a box in the middle of the ocean and think you're doing some great protection when you don't know right. anything about what you're protecting. Right, so, right. so there was a bit of um, there was quite a bit of talking among various parties and, and everything else about like, well, you know, really, there needs to be data behind this. And so um, that's sort of where this Blue Whale project kind of lifted off, where um, we were fortunate enough to have both the Department of Conservation and O and B give us a bunch of money this year to um, to get some tags, to get some satellite tags, and go into the Taranaki area and tag some blue whales, which are thought to be pygmy blue whales. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll find out. We did collect genetic samples, so we will okay. find that out. Okay. But um, so so we were it, we were really fortunate in that, like, okay, well, let's let's go get some tags out. Um, it turned, it was quite 
a difficult process. I've worked on right. a lot of right. different species, and these <laughs> animals are tough. And so, you know, there's a reason that, it, especially um, in uh, in New Zealand, that really they were kind of the last the last um, animals in New Zealand to be hunted because you know they could they had to wait until they got really fast vessels and a lot right. of other things because they're 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 difficult. They're not a right whale. They're not a humpback. They're they're um, they want to disappear. They're fully capable They're, yeah yeah <laughs> and trust me i can attest to this um yeah, yeah. i had a few things that i was thinking about blue whales <laughs> but I won't yeah, yeah, yeah yeah um no they were um so so we uh we were able to get a couple tags out but it was a very complicated task this year because we ran into it was just a crazy hot year and mm-hmm. we ran into issues where there was the water was just too hot for krill to even be in the water which is our main mm-hmm food source. And so mm-hmm. they weren't in that Taranaki area. So we had to go to a further south location before we could find some to get a couple tags out. And and this is what was, but it was cool because it proved the point, even though, you know, it was during the time it was really tough and it very much felt like, oh man, we didn't, we didn't get the eight tags out that we wanted. But, right. but the data that we already have is really neat in the sense that it shows that just putting a box in Taranaki is, you know, for protection, is likely not going to do what what they're hoping it will do. And so, right. you know, one animal completely bypassed the that area and just went north, and the other animal completely circled New Zealand and just went through that area. So, mm-hmm. so this, but it also brings up other conservation. Um, I don't know if you want to say issues, other conservation um, implications where, for example, in New Zealand, they have their own classification system, but we just, again, we don't, we don't know a lot. So this is, it's kind of where this project stemmed from. And so, so yeah, so we're just kind of, um, you know, learning more about it. And the thing that's in in the conservation side of things, that would be really unique opportunity I think for New Zealand is um, there's different ways to um, create protected areas if you will and so there's the Mm -hmm. static area of just throwing a box on a map but there's also something called a dynamic protection which has been the subject of research um, and publications about this is kind of the best way to do things, but nobody has yet implemented it. So mm. this is a really unique opportunity, I think, and a pretty um, ideal situation um, to create like a, a dynamic management plan where, for example, blue whales feed on krill, which is, it's a really um, short food chain, if you will. You know, you're not looking right. at an animal that goes after a fish, which goes after a fish, which goes after a fish. You know, it's a, it's a pretty mm-hmm. short food chain. Mm-hmm. So if you're able to predict, you know, if you create a model, an oceanographic model that is able to predict, for example, uh, where you're going to have upwelling, then you know that that's going to be a productive area where there's then going to be whales. So, mm-hmm. and if you know this well in advance and it's pretty reliable, you can kind of decide, you know, do a more of a dynamic, like, okay, in these months these activities can happen here and these months, these can activities can happen here. So kind of the best of both worlds where you're managing the use of the environment in a way that's still protecting the animal. So that's, that's kind of where we're trying to head with this. No, it's, it's interesting that, you know, you're, you're talking about that. I'm thinking what you opened up with talking about policy, right? Yeah. So, you know, New Zealand government wants to do the, you know, do something great for yeah. protecting animals. They could, oh, we'll just protect this area and they're good. But you're like, use the science, right. you know, and it's so all about using the science to inform the policy. Exactly. Exactly. And so we need to be able to better communicate what the animals needs are. So the government can understand and then implement policy to do that. No, that's, it's fascinating. I looked at that little map and I'll, I'll make sure to put that on the show notes if I can of your tracking of the blue whales around New Zealand and yeah, just, oh, oh, just fascinating mammals, just fascinating mammals. Yeah. And we have no idea. Like we all, you know, we kind of, as scientists, we sort of have our little bets about where the animal's going to go. And, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of my colleagues thought, oh, these animals are going to go north to, uh, to Caledonia, New Caledonia and back because that's tends to be what they do, uh, from some pygmy blues that they tag in Australia. Mm -hmm. But, um, Mm -hmm. we just have no idea. And, and, you know, and it's, 
you know, it's almost a teaser because we could only get a couple tags out and they right, such right. di- they're doing such different things that we're like, oh, is this normal? Like, what is it because it's a La Nina? Like, we just, there's mm-hmm. so many things we don't know. So it's great because this is sort of a jumping point. We're like, hey, now let's, let's get a bigger program up and up and, and really figure out what's going on. Right, just kind of like your preliminary study, and then you're like, okay, right. now this it's is like a pilot. Really this need. is our pilot study. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, I don't know if you can talk about the the, the process of how you tag whales yeah. for the listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's a it's very unique process. You know, there's a couple key things. One is to tag uh, a whale. It's really important that you're in the right position to attach the tag because you have to be within about five meters um, wow. of the animal. So you're talking about being in a six meter boat next to mm-hmm. a twenty to thirty meter animal and within five, you know, within five meters. Um, right. So essentially, it's the the key is really having this customized bowsprit. That's just all that is is a uh, it's a platform that's kind of that's that's attached to your little um, six meter boat, and it sticks. It's on top and it sticks out further than the boat and that allows the person that's doing the tagging to be secured in and also be in a position where they're looking down on the whale and they're ahead of the whale. So it's mm-hmm. it's really necessary to attach these tags. And so then is is what's used is actually um it's not a proper gun per se. It's um it's a modified line thrower, so it's mm-hmm. the um the device that's used to throw lines between vessels and that's uh, Mm -hmm. modified in such a way that you can attach the tag to it and then use that. And so it's just, it's just powered by, you know, the dive, the air tank that you use for diving. Uh, You just Mm -hmm. attach that power by air and then that pressure allows you uh, can release and we'll, we'll shoot the tag out. And how thick's their blubber layer, right? So, like your tags only going in a few inches, right? Or a few centimeters. They go into the, yeah, the tag goes into the blubber and sort of um, kind of lodges into that. And so it's designed to, over time, it, it migrates out and falls falls off the animal. But because whales are really different than, um, for example, my experience in, in, in tagging seals, mm-hmm. right? So on seals, you can literally glue the tag to the, to the seal using epoxy. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when the animal molts, it's uh, completely molts. So all its fur regrows every mm-hmm. year. Then that tag just falls off and you never even know that it had a tag. For, for whales, it's a bit trickier because they're constantly sloughing their skin. Mm-hmm. So you can't just have um, a, a long-term tag just attached to the skin won't, won't work. So there are suction cup tags, but that's that's very uh, um, those are like more in a matter of days right. and it looks at right. fine scale behavior. Mm-hmm. It's not for long term mm-hmm. duration. So if we want to know where animals go on a long term, that's why it impl- it's basically called an implantable tag. So it goes into the blubber of the animal and then slowly just kind of migrates out and falls off. But they actually it's it's really it's funny that you should ask that because I mean sometimes people will see the tags and they're like oh wow that looks pretty you know pretty big tag right. but it's it's one of the things that uh, to keep it in perspective is um, if you actually look the size of the tag relative to the animal is really not much different than putting a microchip in your pet right um, it's 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 actually and you and in despite its size, you actually see, you don't see any reaction from the whale. Just attach a tag and it just keeps going mm-hmm. just like, like it was, but it's, it's not like it even flinches. Right. Yeah. Like I could that. imagine it's, it's not even a pinprick, you know, they, they probably yeah, don't even it's, know it's it. Yeah. It's impressive. It's just, you know, cause it does. I mean, to us, like, you know, obviously being much smaller animals, yeah. you're like, Ooh, that looks like a, you know, it's a decent size tag, yeah. but, but it's actually, when you put it in perspective, it's actually, like I said, not much difference in putting a microchip in your pet. Right. And then it, it can only uh, hit the satellite when they breach, right? Yeah, when they surface. So, yeah. Um, or surface, uh, yeah, they come yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. Yeah, so when they come up to to breathe, um, it'll 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 um, communicate with the with the satellite. And so, uh, the way the tags are designed is they're on a a 40, 45 second repetition mm-hmm. rate, which means that it's only gonna once it's there's a wet dry sensor on it, and so once the tag detects that it's dry it's not underwater mm. it'll transmit every 45 seconds to the to the satellite oh, awesome. and that's to 
Um, yeah, so that's to make it make sure too that you're not getting you know usually you're kind of limited. You set the number of transmissions, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so you don't want you know a thousand billion transmissions when it surfaces because then it kills yeah, your battery. Yeah, yeah, and your tag, your tag goes dead. Yeah. and it's the same you know the same for the saltwater switch or the the wet dry sensor right. is that um you know again you don't want it constantly transmitting when the animal's underwater because it'll kill your battery. Right. But yeah, but but we don't you know the at this point in the tag design there's 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 a whole bunch of scientists involved. In sort of the ethics of tagging because you know you know you'll you'll hear different people's opinions and some people think ah oh, tagging you know it's it's just a little bit too invasive mm-hmm. or and um but it's it really is um there's a whole a whole uh, committee of scientists that are um essentially really dedicated to in improving the tag design to make it as as minimally invasive mm-hmm. as possible. And um and they and we do monitor. Like, you know, we we will go back if, if we have the opportunity, if we can get near a tagged animal that, that has been previously tagged, we'll go to it to take photos and things like that to make sure that, you know, if there's any issues or um things like that that we can address those. Cause cause the goal of conservation science you know, science is it's in my opinion, it's not worth doing unless you know, you're really, um, re- none of us are in the game to hurt animals. No, no. Yeah. Way. And so, you know, it's about, okay, well, what information can we gain at, at the minimal cost of the animal? Right, right. And I, you know, I've seen some studies on tracking of elephants in Africa and they have these yeah. huge collars with the transmitter yeah. and they have to dart, knock the animal down, yeah. then get those. They do their health checks. Then they track them for a while and then they'll dart them again and remove it. It's kind of invasive, right? Whereas you're on a boat yeah, exactly. and you're just kind of like, oop, poink. And, yeah. and then you get this wealth of information that is yeah. being used. And, and I will say this while you were saying that too, as scientists, we're very good at policing ourselves. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, if any of us think you do anything unethical, we will be on top of you so quickly. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And there is a reason there are ethics committees, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, I certainly had to apply for an ethics permit and go in front of a panel and, you know, answer questions. And you're, you're exactly right. Like, I mean, um, Absolutely. Like, I mean, you'll be the first to be called out. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I mean, not only, you know, like you said, your, our scientific articles, but, you know, even in, in our fields. So anytime we work with animals, yeah. it's heavily, it depends on the country, but I know here in New Zealand yeah. and then in the States, it's hev- and even the EU heavily regulated before yeah. you, you can even touch an animal or, or look at an animal, you know. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So what you mentioned, you know, the whaling industry and, and I was going to bring this up. At some point, I guess now is a good point too. You know, I remember watching a documentary on, and I think I mentioned this in one of our pods. It, it was a scientist, and I don't know if it was Baker. Um, I looked up the paper, but he was oh, okay. doing genetics, right? And oh he, yeah, Scott Baker. I'm right, sure. right. And he was sampling all the whale meat in the Japanese markets. Yeah, yeah. And he came across whale steaks that were from a blue whale, and it happened to be one that he had tagged previously or, or had tracked before. And I remember my heart oh, was like, funny. Oh, my heart was broken. It was like, are you kidding me? So what are the, what are really the big pressures that blue whales are facing right now? Uh, so right now, I mean, I think a lot of it is just recovery, you know, particularly for the Antarctic blue whales that were so heavily hunted and, mm-hmm. you know, with, uh, the illegal Soviet whaling. Um, so for example, you know, in the, the, the Soviet whaling basically operated from the late forties into the early seventies and they, they killed, you know, over, um, 200,000 animals just mm-hmm. in the Southern hemisphere alone, but, but they only reported a fraction of these and that mm-hmm. wasn't made, that wasn't made brought to light until I think around the nineties and, you know, with these whalers coming f- forward and, and translating logbooks because they, you know, there are all these logbooks that, mm. that weren't, um, that were sort of, I don't know. Hi- I don't know if you want to use hidden or whatever, but they right. weren't, they weren't public knowledge. Right, right. And so with the help of some of the other people that, that were, I, I believe they were on the, on the whaling boats, um, but came to light that there was, oh, there was way more animals killed than, than were previously reported. And this had really huge implications for stock structure and stuff. So when people were 
figuring out what is the abundance estimate of blue whales, what is going to be the recovery, the trajectory mm -hmm. on, on how these animals would recover, they were using wrong numbers. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, something's going on. Animals aren't recovering. What's going on? Well, the, the when you add in the additional whales that were taken from Soviet whaling along with the other, other whaling that was going on, I mean, it drastically changed the number of blue whales that were taken out of the ocean, which is, mm -hmm. you know, a, it's a huge biomass. You're basically wiping out a, a trophic level, you know. And right, so right. With 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 all the baleen whales that were that were taken out, and you know, blue whales being one of them. I mean, it, it was just a huge impact on the on the ecosystem. Oh, and yeah. So, oh yeah. You know, so these animals, um, the Antarctic blues. I mean, they're still at low numbers, and they're still endangered. And so, um, but at least that pressure is. I mean, that's changed. So right. now we're hoping to see a recovery. Uh, of these animals. Um, but as far as, as pygmy blue whales, we just, we don't know enough. They were, you know, they were, there was whaling in New Zealand, what we know, mm. but it was primarily focused on right whales and humpback whales. And to a lesser degree, the blue whales, for, for the reasons I mentioned, mm -hmm. um, they're very, they travel very fast. And, yeah. um, you know, you really need, they're more, much more difficult to work with. And so why work with them when there's other animals at your doorstep? Right, um, they're easier. So it wasn't yeah. until later that they were taken out and then, you know, and then whaling stopped, you know. And so they were, the pygmy blues seem to have been less impacted than the Antarctic blues. Right. And is, is poaching still a concern with them? Or, or is there still any incidents in the last decade of blue whales being harvested? Not to, um, not that I'm aware of, mm -hmm. um, you know, I know there, there's obviously, um, the, the big, um, what do you want to call it? The, um, the whole thing with the Japanese whaling, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. they are still taking whales under the guise of scientific research, but those mm -hmm. are primarily minky. I don't, um, so right. if there's other animals taken, um, obviously like you were alluding to, to Scott's work that, you know, you could find that out with genetics and, there is, you know, I've certainly seen shows where they've done genetics in sushi restaurants and, you know, kind of, if you know who's who, or even in, in Santa Barbara, actually, mm -hmm. um, they've, they've certainly found that they were serving whale meat in restaurants, but wow. specifically to blue whales, I, I, I don't, don't know that know. enough is even, even known. I don't think it's a huge market. I think there is a, I think there's a bit of a market for whales in general, but it's, right. it's specific to blues, um, Likely not, especially if you can okay. get other animals. Yeah, and they're heavily protected now too, right? I mean, yeah. they're yeah, they're with the classification. It was interesting. We just did a, a podcast on pangolins and the most trafficked animal in the world, and we were talking about in the U.S. And you could find you know anything, almost anything in the U.S. So with the blue whales populations being so low, you know, is this going to take a hundred years, a thousand years? How long until they recover? know um how certain that is to be honest phil clapham at um at NOAA in seattle he's one of the lead people that that work on the blue whale um and the soviet whaling and the effect to the population and right. um you know i don't i don't know if they have a full understanding of how long that will take but it's certainly not going to be you know, it's not going to be in the order of decades, you know, it's, it's, right. it's going to be quite a long time, you know, and, and we don't know, like, it's just like for the, um, the right whale, the, in the Northern hemisphere, I mean, there's so few left and they haven't even seen any calves this year. So, Ugh. you know, we, it's so uncertain, um, you know, and it's, and it's quite sad because there's so many species that are disappearing on our watch, you know, it's the mm -hmm. Maui dolphin here, you know, I'm sure mm -hmm. you're familiar with them. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. there's, there's, 60 some animals left and that's completely an, an endemic species to New Zealand. And so these are, uh, these are issues that are, ha are occurring on our watch, you know, it's not, you know, the vaquita porpoise, now the Maui dolphin, blue whales, right whales. I mean, there are so many aquatic species that are suffering. And again, like you were saying, we don't know a lot about them. So how do we even go about developing conservation action plans so really, really fascinating work. The, there's so many, there's so many issues as well with with these small populations, and and I mm -hmm. reason I, I kind of waffly on like we don't really know how long the recovery is going to take is because mm -hmm. there, you know, there's um, just like Scott works on the genetics. There, the genetics are really important, and so if you get species that get down to a very very low number, 
it's it's likely that they're very um, homogenous in their genetics. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot mm-hmm. of variety. So the more they, the, if they're able to, you know, it's one thing that they're able to, you know, to breed and reproduce and and have calves. But it's another to say if something happens in their environment, like let's say there's a new disease that appears mm-hmm. because their genetics are so similar, um, because there's such few animals, it has the potential to wipe out the, the population very fast. And so there's some unknown factors, but regardless, when you get down to a population size, there's there's there can be some very serious consequences um, based on oh, yeah. um, outside factors. Oh yeah, I mean it's ugh, I could talk about this all day because it. Right? <laughs> yeah, I mean it is. It's such a it, it's maddening because we can't you know get down to such a small population. Right. You know, understanding genetics. Place, right? <laughs> right. Right. You know, I've done some immune genetics work and. When you get a, a, a homogenous meaning everybody has the same genetics, one disease can kill off the entire population. So, you know, you see things like I was doing some work in Somali wild ass looking at some immune genes in them. But I look at Przewalski horse, they were down to 12 breeding animals. And, yeah, there's a couple thousand now, but there's no genetic diversity. So there's a lot of, uh, of trouble with that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So... I, before, you know, we want to ask a couple more questions about blue whales, but from a broader standpoint, you're a marine ecologist. Right. We, in this podcast, talk a lot about the oceans. Um, you know, where, in your opinion, your scientific opinion, where are we with our oceans? I mean, this great garbage patch we're, yeah, we're trying to uh, shine a light on. Yeah. It's horrific. But from your perspective, what's going on in the oceans right now? You know, there's, I think... I don't think any scientist would argue that, um, you know, we're in a, we're not necessarily in a good place. You know, uh, like Mm -hmm. I said, I've worked in the Arctic for a long time too. I was there, uh, one of the first years, I think it was in, it's in 2007 that there was literally no ice in the Northwest Passage. Um, oh, to yeah. see the first yeah. cruise ship rock into Barrow, Alaska was a little bit Ugh. unnerving, you know? And, mm-hmm. and so there's, we're we're warming the ocean. I mean, that's you know, you can't you can't really debate the scientific evidence no, behind that. No, no, and, no. Um, I mean, I I realize people could try, but as a scientist, it would be yeah. really hard to ignore some of that. But um, right, right. You know, and and so there's there's the issue, like you mentioned. There's there's the polluting, right? There's the plastics. Mm. It's just crazy the amount of plastics we're putting mm-hmm. into the ocean and then there's there's basically these these issues with warming so of course there's natural um changes to our environment but you know the anthropogenic influence is is pretty undisputed and so we're we're warming at a rate that's very um that's not just due to natural occurrences and so mm-hmm. you know i think i think those are some of the big things that we're just encountering is you know like you said the plastics and also it's Things like in the Southern Ocean. So to under to give you a little understanding of that, you know, there's there's an entire the entire ocean circulation is essentially driven by the conveyor belt that travels around Antarctica, and mm-hmm. this water, you know, this this um, conveyor belt brings is responsible for all the ocean circulation. So if we shut this down, I mean, we're pretty much game over and so that is a huge thing and so we are going to you know humans on earth are going to the ends of the world now and play and and so when you know we normally didn't go into antarctic waters into the ross sea and and didn't have much of an impact but now we are and so there Mm -hmm. are there's a lot of scientists for example studying this um i'd have to think of the name um this, but studying the circulation uh, mm-hmm, around mm-hmm. Antarctica, and there are changes to that as well. So th- I think that's one of the main main concerns, and right. also just ecosystem health. I mean, we have so few examples on our planet of an intact ecosystem, and so it brings mm-hmm. the question to light of how do you know how to protect an ecosystem, for example, if you don't know what a healthy one looks like, just like how do you fix right. a sick patient if you don't know what a healthy one looks like? Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. And, you know, and so that's that's been one of the, um, I also work, in, like I said, in the Ross Sea in Antarctica, and you may be aware that they're, they recently enacted the Ross Sea Marine Protected Area. And mm-hmm. so um, that is 
very political in, in itself. But I mean, a lot of that was was um, one of the, the big topics around this whole thing was because of fishing, right? So we go, mm-hmm. um, um, humans, I should say, go into the, the Ross Sea and fish for toothfish. And this is... This is basically the uh, the last place on the planet that was shown to be an example of an e- intact ecosystem, and now we're going mm-hmm. into it and removing a top predator. That's that's a really mm-hmm. important component of the ecosystem. So the part of this protection is like we need to understand what we're doing before we really truly destroy it. And um, yep. but it's it's like that with so many. That's just one example. And so again, it's it's just. It really is. Um, we're kind of at a, I guess, a, an apex where we just really need to start understanding what a healthy ecosystem and how to, how are we going to conserve other places on the planet? Like we can't keep going at the rate that we're going. Right, right. No, and it's, you know, we've done things such as polar bears, and uh, I have a good friend yeah. who we interviewed, Dr. Aaron Curry, and you know, the sea ice and talking about how the Arctic is, is just critical for polar bears and other for species walrus, up there. Yeah. And now, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, and, I was up there one year when it was just, I mean, it was just, we didn't even realize, I'm like, are we seeing this right? And we're flying aerial surveys in the Arctic and suddenly we come across this, on this beach, this massive haul out of walrus and walrus don't haul uh-huh. out on beaches. They're ice dwelling right. animals. And so, it's just, and it's what happens in those cases that it can also separate a species from its prey source. So if it needs to be out on right. the sea ice to reach whatever it's foraging on, then it can't get to those places because there is no sea ice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you just start, like you said, now down here in near the Antarctic, you have uh, disturbing the ecosystem there, and so you start making this all out of whack. And we use the term trickle up, triple, trickle Absolutely, down. Yeah. So. You know, you turn around and, and that's going to affect blue whales, you know, and other, other right. aquatic species. So what what's the most thing that fascinates you about blue whales specifically? They are such just unknown, amazing creatures. I mean, being close to mm-hmm. a blue whale and seeing how massive these animals are and to be able to support themselves in terms of their energetic demands and needs Mm -hmm. they're feeding on some of the smallest animals right and so it just fascinates me and the fact that they're so big but they're so you know hard to find and work with and Mm -hmm. um it's really impressive um and they also just don't really seem bothered by you know even us being around them per se right right yeah i think it's just it's fascinating that they, to me, that they that the world's one of the uh, world's largest animals feeding on one of the world's smallest animals, and they seem to know how to find those areas. You know, this is it's a big ocean. Mm. Like, how are you yeah, able to yeah. reliably <laughs> find krill patches and right, you know, forage right. on these and sustain yourself? Um, so, you know, and we're looking at the one animal that's doing laps around the South Island and you can, you <laughs> yeah. can see where it's, where it's stopping, um, like where it's spending more time, which is usually uh, an indication of where it's finding food. And it makes sense. It's, it's again, the areas where there tends to be upwelling, but, um, but it's quite fascinating. Cause it's like, even though, to, you know, for, for me and for people in general, you know, we're super fascinated by the movement of these animals. It's like, they know what they're doing. They've been doing this forever. We're just mm-hmm. kind of the ones that are like, look at this, you know, but, um, yeah, yeah. but it's, it's just fascinating. I mean, how they even know how, where they're going, for example. I mean, they're obviously right, right. migrating through or, or traveling through a three dimensional environment. Um, and, and they, they seem to know where they're going and how to find what they need. Right. And I, I mean, just even going back to the acoustics, you're talking about some people think that might be coming from Antarctica. I mean, how many miles or kilometers away is that from New Zealand? Oh, we're you talking know, so way, how over, they way over a hundred. And, um, yeah. that's the cool thing about these animals is they communicate at such a low frequency that, I mean, we can't mm-hmm. actually hear them. So if you play, for example, a blue whale call that you find on the internet or whatever, like you mm-hmm. can, you can hear it, but it's adjusted into our hearing range. So in reality, mm-hmm. you actually wouldn't be able to hear it because it'd be so low frequency. It would be out outside our hearing range. And so Mm-hmm. With low frequency sound, um, it tr- it has a very long wavelength and travels very far before it dissipates. So 
Mm-hmm. If you have a dolphin, for example, which is high frequency and it's clicking away, you get, you know, um, a kilometer away and you likely won't hear it anymore or pick it up on recording devices versus mm-hmm. a blue whale, which can be over a hundred kilometers away. And if the oceanographic conditions are, you know, are, are ideal, um, you will pick that up. These animals can communicate across ocean basins. And that is just right. amazing to me. Uh, and I'd love to know what they were saying. Like, yeah, just... right. <laughs> I don't know if we would want to know. They might have a few things yeah, to tell us. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna sink this boat here and watch That's this. That's right, exactly. The yeah. whole plan. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I don't want to take up your whole day because I could. It, it's, uh, you know, I, one of the things I always like to ask, especially, you know, you're a scientist, so, and this came up in one of our early episodes as I was leaving UF and in a meeting with some scientists and. And one of them, one, I highly respect, he said, oh, we should just let nature take its course and animals are going to go extinct. Oh, well, you know, we're part of yeah, the environment. Right. And yeah. so how, how do you respond to that? Why do we, I guess, a uh, you know, two-part question. Is it, why should we spend the money on saving a species yeah. like the blue whales? And should we just let nature take its course and, and let some of these animals go extinct? Yeah. So, I mean, those are important questions to address. Um you know, I could, from my perspective, you know, people people have different opinions about our our relationship as humans to animals, for example. So, mm-hmm. some people think that okay, well, we're humans. We're however we came about. We are it, animals are here for our convenience. We can do whatever we want with them. You know, um, at whatever expense. And so, there are. That, that is a thought that I have heard people communicated. Mm-hmm. However, in my personal perspective, I mean, I would argue that, like, we're one of the animals on our planet. We are one of, we are part of the ecosystem. But, yes, we might be, have, uh, you know, be more intelligent and, and various things. But right. I, I would like to think that, you know, we should be more stewards in the environment and that we should be mm-hmm. responsible for taking care of it and um, and have have that responsibility because we can have that responsibility, you know. And I think I think there are I, I, there certainly are natural extinctions. It, it it's not that it's not a natural process, but I mean you can certainly mm-hmm. look at the research, and there are many of the extinctions are due to our impact on the planet. And um, right. And I would I think that's just irresponsible to be honest. Um, and you know, you know, it's, it's difficult because. There's so much we don't know about animals, and typically is what happens is it's not until it's too late that mm-hmm. we realize there's a problem, and then the conservation comes in, and then it doesn't really have um, it doesn't have much impact. And so I think there is that argument too that people are, oh well, you know, we can spend tons and tons and tons of money, but you know, it's, it's so many X, Y, and Z animals go extinct anyway, and and right. I think there's a valid point to that, but I don't think it's it's because conservation doesn't work. It's just the problem isn't recognized till it's too late. And that's right, what right. we need to kind of, you know, as scientists and, and others need to kind of um, improve. Um, you know, it's not right. an easy process, but I think that's what we should be doing. Yeah, it's, it's we're more reactionary than precautionary, right? And, we, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we see it, a species in crisis, we, we react to it, we fail, and everybody's like, oh, Conservation doesn't oh, work. Whoops! Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. You know, and yeah. and there's certainly criticisms, you know, and certain things too, especially in the states, you know, about you know when you put an animal on the endangered species list, it's, it's it is quite difficult to to get off, and there are mm-hmm. implications for that. You know, there's certain species that have been successful in terms of the recovery, but then mm-hmm. you know people get upset because it's like, well, you know, now it's like there's plenty of these animals, and you know I can't still do X, Y, and Z because they're on the right endangered species list. And it's a valid point and, and it is a, a, a difficult, um, in my understanding, it's very difficult to remove an animal. And so, so those mm-hmm. are things that we, you know, need to be improved and we, you know, th- those are things that we can work towards, but you know, th- it's not to say it's perfect, but I'm still not, I'm not willing to say it's not worth the fight. No. Yeah, no. I mean, it absolutely is worth the fight. And, you know, like I would argue, we do have a moral obligation to conserve and protect and, be able to like look at the blue whale and say, okay, this is what this species needs. You know, we have an obligation to them to keep the oceans healthy. So it's, right. uh, we, th- 
Yeah, I know. We can talk. We can talk about this all day. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, you know, and I think I think that's another thing that was. It's really. It was really interesting to me and in some of my. Uh, I had to take a lot of economic classes as well, and so you know, a lot. I think you know. I think we can all admit that there is money always plays a part in decisions, mm-hmm. and you know, it's it's just it's just the nature of the beast. But so in in the economics classes, one of the things that we learned was you know there there is this importance of actual monetary value, but that's not everything. There actually is. You can literally transfer a dollar amount to something that's called, mm-hmm. uh, you know, something like existence value. And so even though, you know, Bob living some other country may have never seen a blue whale in his life, but maybe is interested in them and reads about it, there is still some value to mm-hmm. this person knowing that these whales exist. And so, um, so there is... You know, that is an important thing, and I think it's not trivial, you know, just because, for example, people may never see a pangolin. You know, I I haven't seen a pangolin. It's certainly important to me to to work on what's going on or to be aware of it and to care about it. No, it's a great point, and it's, you know, every species we cover, we it just seems like there. you talked about the economics, and that's been a a constant theme, and you know, in each species we, we cover, you know, that, uh, some of the pressures that are, they're facing, but, you know, just, we can put dollar values on, on some of these species, not with ecotourism or things like that, yeah. but just bats in general. Like we did a podcast a few pods ago on, on bats and billions of dollars in the United States bats yeah. save farmers, you yep. know, in pesticide costs and stuff like that. And that savings is passed on to the consumer. Yes. You know, that's our groceries are cheaper. Fish, we love to eat fish. Most, yeah. almost every society on earth eats fish. You know, healthy oceans, we can eat fish and have a good source of protein. But when yeah. you start taking all these cogs out, you know, yeah. I, I, in the long term, I just don't see how it's, none of this is not going to affect us in, in really dramatic uh, ways. Yeah. But anyways. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was going to say, as you know, as scientists, I think we're all consumers on some level, right? And so, cons- mm-hmm. like I said, you know, and unfortunately, the way things often work is, is you know, money talks. And, and you know, and it, you can sit here and, you know, all day and be really frustrated right by that. And I have been as well. But if you can think of, think outside the box and think of, okay, well, how can we turn this around? You know, it's, um, for example, you know, different, different areas, people mm-hmm. get very upset. Locals get very upset and, and definitely in Africa, very, very species where, you know, these, these animals that, you know, you or I might think, oh, this is really important to conserve. These people, you know, may not be, you know, barely living a sustainable life and they might rely on livestock and things like that that are getting mm-hmm. taken out and nobody's stepping in to help these people when they lose their, their, um, you know, basically their, their life string. And so, so, you know, that's where we can, like, we need to think outside the box. We need to think, okay, like, Mm. obviously there's two sides to every story, but how do we, how do we address these things where suddenly we bring those other people onto the same side? And so rather than having these people, you know, different, different people with different beliefs and, and, you know, kind of banging heads, it's like, okay, well, how can we address the other person's issues too, where we can both come to uh, um, a good conclusion where it's sort of a win-win. And that's where I think people right. get stuck in their own, you know, like, oh, no, this is the way I'm going to think, and I'm not going to try to think the other person's. And so there's a lot to be said for communication, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely, absolutely. So as we kind of wrap up, I always like to ask, is there any way the listeners, how could we best support, you know, blue whale research or the work that you're doing for marine ecology? Specifically for the blue whales, I think it's, this is something that I think is really important because we know so little about these animals and we're at a pretty unique place now, especially with so much interest. It's an area that is actively used for other activities and it is, um, and, and there's just, we don't know about their movement. So we're mm-hmm. at a pretty unique place now that, you know, rather than, you know, let's go and let's do all these things to the environment and then, you know, think back like, oh, whoops, like we messed up because we didn't know anything about the right. animal. Let's, let's get the information about the animal and like, and work together so that we can kind of come up with the best solution. And so I guess, you know, it's really trying to, I think there is the government um, interest in this. And so it's, I think it's just really the people, especially in New Zealand, New Zealand is such a, um, a short chain between the, the public and the, mm-hmm. the, the government, um, you know, the, mm-hmm. the ministries and, and things like that, where it's, um, 
people can make a difference. And so I think it's really reaching out to those representatives and saying, hey, this is what's important to me. And that there's such a big pull. Like if the government wants to get something done, then, you know, those things will have priority. And so mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. talking to the Department of Conservation, the you know, there's um, the Department of Conservation plays a large role in this as well. And we're we're collaborating with them on this. And they they did. They were they came to the table and they said, yeah, let's let's um, let's do this together. Let's bring these parties together. And, um, you know, we I it's very New Zealand is a small country, and so it's it's mm-hmm, not like mm-hmm. one organization is able to give you like, hey, here's you know a million dollars to go to go do this. It's just right. that doesn't exist, and so you kind of have to bring these parties together. So I think people just making it aware that you know that there is an interest behind this and it is important to them has a really large pull, and and I don't think people mm-hmm. give themselves enough credit for for recognizing that, especially in such a small country. So I think it's right, you know, right. It's just, um, that's something, you know, we want to get the data now so that we can make the right decisions and really trying to make a difference in their protection and not, you know, just put a box on a map and say, well, we thought that would work, you know, yeah. we didn't really know. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah. So really, I think it's just, it's it's really getting that public interest up and and, um, and I, there's a lot of power behind that. Dr. Kim Getz, thank you so much. Uh, you know, about that, that's an hour just like flew by. I can't even believe it. <laughs> But thank you so much. I'm just going to say, if you need someone to to cook for you on your ship, I'm I'm a pretty good cook. I might, yeah, I think I could take enough Dramamine. I won't get too seasick. But, you know, if you need any help tagging blue whales, you know, I'm looking for a job so I can, I can, I can cook. I can put some (laughs) potatoes on a boat. (laughs) So bring, bring some, uh, you know, Coca-Cola. That's my weakness. Yeah. uh, Yeah. 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 We'll discuss. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but uh anytime i get to you know i'll get down to wellington at some point with my oh, wife please and do. yeah yeah, yeah please i'll do. try I'm to look you to up show and, you around show you around yeah. niwa and uh, i can show you some some cool things around here we have a really amazing yeah. invert collection and various other things so i'd love to i'd love to um meet up yeah yeah that's awesome awesome well well thank you so much and uh you know dr kim get so take care thank you so much yeah thank you so much all right bye-bye